and we won't talk about the dean of students stuff. <clears throat> I've made it a point to forget all the bad stuff, just remember the good stuff. And I'll tell you one thing I've learned through the years is some of the biggest knuckleheads, you know that word, have turned out to be great servants for God in the kingdom. And he wasn't a knucklehead, <laughs> not in that category. But there were certainly others. Good to be with you. Thank you for the privilege and opportunity. I had much to say about this in introduction, but I only have a few minutes. At this particular service, I have to stop, right? This is a problem. So I've got to get finished on time. So just know it's a joy to be with you, and we're going to get right at it. So get your Bibles out, please. I hope you brought your Bible. And I hope you have a copy with you. So here we go. I want you to hold your Bible up if you have it. Everybody look around. Hold it up. I don't think there's anybody that doesn't have one, even the little kids. You all have your own copy, right? I hope. I want you to listen to this, Council of Toulouse, 1229. Toulouse is in southern France. In the 1200s, there was a lot happening in southern France and northern Spain that was very troublesome to the Roman Catholic Church. There was a whole movement called the Albigensians. Have you studied this? Some of you have. And the Albigensians were considered heretics and they were spreading their false doctrine. So a council was called, convened. It was a local council rather than a broad ecumenical council. But it was called, with the approval of the Roman Catholic Pope, and there were 45 canons passed. Now, this is a class, so we can get interaction, right? What's a canon? Do you know in terms of religious things? What's a canon? Yeah. It's not something you blow people up with, right? No. It's, it is a law of the church passed officially by a church, in that case, the clergy, and that people were supposed to keep on, in sometimes, the penalty of death. In this case, there were 45 canons passed for the extinction of heresy and the reestablishment of peace, and I already mentioned to you what was going on. And by the way, the Albigensians weren't the only group. There were lots of different heretical groups popping up. So the first canon of this particular 45 was to tell them they had all the approval of the church to go searching for people in all of their affairs to find these people and to bring them to either confession or to death. The 14th canon of the Council of Toulouse forbade the scriptures to the laity. What's the laity, folks? The common folk. That's us, isn't it? I'm common. I'm a preacher, but I'm no clergy. In fact, there's no such thing in scripture, is there? No. There's no clergy-laity distinction. That's another thing that cha changed in the early centuries. 
the laity, the common folk, were not supposed to have copies of the scriptures according to this or the translation of any portion of them into the common tongue. So I want to read you the 14th canon of the Council of Toulouse. We also forbid the laity to possess any of the books of the Old or New Testaments except perhaps the Psalter. I think I know what that is. That's the book of Psalms. Or breviary for the divine offices. I don't know what that is. But they weren't allowed to have that except in exceptional cases. Or the hours of the blessed virgin. Don't know what that is either. Which some out of devotion wish to have. So they may make exception for you if you want one or more of those. But they better not be in the common tongue. But having any of these books translated into the vulgar tongue, we strictly forbid. And folks, when a council in 1229 said we strictly forbid it, what do you think that meant? Death. And in some instances, terrible torture. So if this were 1229, and I ask you to raise your copy of your English, I assume most of you raised an English Bible, right? You wouldn't be showing it to anybody. You would be hiding it if you were fortunate enough to have it. And I hope you're aware, class, that for most of the time that humans have existed on earth, most people did not have their own copy of the Bible. I'm pausing to let that sink in. You don't realize often how blessed you are to have in your possession a copy of the scriptures, not only in the original language, which most of you don't have, which was what, class? What were the original languages of the text of the Bible? Hebrew for the Old Testament mostly, a little bit of Aramaic and Greek for the New Testament. And so the original text would have been all in those languages, which most folks in this audience couldn't read if you had it. But you, class, are blessed to have in your possession the Bible in English, the language in which you were born, raised to speak, and which in this century is the language of business and politics all over the world. And you have your own copy. In fact, if you're like I am, I probably have 50 different copies in a bunch of different languages, all of which they would have called the vulgar tongue. And that doesn't mean it's cussing. It means it was common and you better not have it. So English versions of the Bible, ladies and gentlemen, is a remarkable phenomenon and all of us privileged to have them at our convenience. One of my goals in this series of two lessons and my first proposition for advertising for tonight is I can't finish this in the time I have this morning. So don't miss part two. What time is that going to be? Six o'clock. You will be back at six o'clock. How can we be confident that our English versions are trustworthy? Given that, so much time has passed, so many things have happened, and given the difficulty of translating 
text from one language to another. Anybody that's tried to do that knows there's some challenges there. And I'll not spend a lot of time talking about that. But the fact is, it's hard to translate some things from one language into another and really get the meaning across. So, I say that's a very good question. So that's the question I'm asking in this lesson and then this evening. Can we trust our English versions to be telling us what God wants us to know from his word? I hope you've studied this in the past. My experience over the last few years when I go to churches and do this series is that there are many, many Christians who've never thought deeply about this. So to me, it's part of the faith building that we're doing this week. And I thank the elders for the privilege and the opportunity. So are you ready? Let's talk. I have an answer for you. Are English versions trustworthy? And I say, absolutely not. There are some versions that are not trustworthy. So you have your Bibles out. I want you to turn to John chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. And by the way, we're going to be turning to passages right along, so keep your Bibles handy. And I would say to you, a first example of a translation into English that is not trustworthy is the New World Translation. The New World Translation was done by the Jehovah's Witness Organization. And the translation in their Bible for John 1.1, as you will see in a minute, is definitely full of their bias. And I would say to you, in general, a translation into English done by one person or one specific group of persons that have a very limited perspective are generally not trustworthy as a whole. So what does John 1.1 say in the New World Translation? Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Is that what yours says? Almost. What are the only differences? There's a little word A put in there, right? That's not in yours, is it? And the word God is not capitalized in their version. You are aware, aren't you, that in the original manuscripts of the Bible, there were no capitals, or they were all capitals. So the distinction between having a capital G and not having a capital G is hard to establish from the original manuscripts. But it only makes all the difference, doesn't it? So that one little change or two little changes in their translation only changes the entire message of the gospel. So no, that's not a trustworthy version. And by the way, scholars of the text of the Bible say there is not any substantial support for that translation, the way they translated But they did it anyway because they have a position about that. They believe Jesus was a created being, not on an equality with God the Father. So is that English version to be trusted? No, beloved. 
the Living Bible Paraphrase. It was produced by one man, Kenneth Taylor. Dangerous business. And Kenneth Taylor, he even says it in his title, paraphrase. You want a paraphrase Bible where somebody just restates it and puts his own viewpoint in it? Not a good thing to depend on. And, of course, it's thought for thought. It's his thought of what the Bible says. And it's full, of course, of the faults and weaknesses that he believes in. So I want to go to one of them. Well, let's just do two of them. Ephesians 3. Everybody turn to Ephesians 3. I'm pardon me, Ephesians 2, verse 3. I'm reading from the New King James Version. It says, Among whom we also once were conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as others. The last part is what I want to focus in on. And were by nature children of wrath just as others. What do you have, David? Read it out loud, would you? That last part, part B. And we're by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Okay, so that's almost the same as the New King James. Here's what um, his version says. We started out bad, being born with evil natures, and we're under God's anger just like everyone else. Now, folks, that puts a twist on that that's quite different from what the passage says. In fact, it fits very well with the Calvinist doctrine that you were born with sin on your soul that you inherited from Adam. You were born bad, he says. Well, that's one way to interpret part B. You were by nature children of wrath. You can interpret it that way. And so do many people. But that's not what it says. So it's dangerous business. In 1 Peter 3, this passage says, In baptism we show that we have been saved. That's not what 1 Peter 3 says, is it? No. I'm going to give you a minute to turn over there. 1 Peter 3. A little bit of a controversial passage in some people's minds. Mine says there is also an antitype which now saves us, namely baptism. That's quite different from saying it's shown that you've already been saved. That's not what the passage says, class, but that's what his version in English says. So if you're going to use that version as your text upon which you're basing, this is what God wants me to know, it's not a healthy thing. Other versions should be used with careful judgment because of the purpose of their translations. And by the way, you can go to the prefixes of your Bibles, the prefaces, and it'll tell you what the committees that did these translations were doing. And you should do that. Several English versions were produced by committees of scholars, but their intent was meaning for meaning, not word for word. That's not all bad. But it has dangers tied up in it. Examples of these are the New English Bible and the New International Version. New International Version is very popular because it's easy to read. But it was established 
by the committee as a meaning for meaning type of translation. And I'm telling you, you need to be careful with that. Because anytime you go meaning for meaning and not word for word, you can introduce a meaning that may or may not be there just by the insinuations of your words. So be careful. The most trustworthy English versions in this person's judgment with the agreement of a whole lot of other folks is those that are translated by large committees of scholars from various backgrounds. They help to balance one another in their actual translations rather than putting their own bias in it. That's a healthy thing. Secondly, that are produced with the intent of giving the world an accurate word-for-word translation of the best Greek and Hebrew texts. Folks, this is all based on the Greek and Hebrew texts. And I put in my second plug for this afternoon. We're going to talk more about those this afternoon. Everything we do in English has to be based on the original, doesn't it? It should be. So we need to know more about that. And we'll talk some more about that this afternoon. So, translated by large committees from various backgrounds with the idea, I want a word-for-word translation that gives you the information intended by God in the Greek and Hebrew text. Isn't that what you want? Well, here are examples of that type of translation. The King James had that design. So did the New King James and the American Standard, the New American Standard and the English Standard Version. Those five, I would say to you, are the most trustworthy you can have of the ones we have in English. Because they are, they meet those qualifications. All right. I want you to read with me what's in my New King James in the front of it. And you need to go read yours sometime. Mine says, complete equivalence seeks to preserve all the information in the text. So these guys that translated the New King James said, our goal is complete equivalence. We want to get out of the text in Hebrew and Greek what we need to in English to get complete equivalence. That's what I want. And secondly, it's appropriate for all participating scholars to sign a statement affirming their belief in the verbal and plenary inspiration of Scripture and in the inerrancy of the original autographs. That's a lot of big words, but it means they believe the Bible's the Word of God. And every translator that worked on the translations had to sign that. I would like folks translating my Bible into English who believe the Bible's the Word of God. The New King James Version follows the historic precedent of the authorized version. May I pause there just a moment? The authorized version. What does that refer to? Anybody know? The King James. And so who authorized it? King James. He was a wicked person. A heathen. Although he considered himself somewhat a defender of the faith. But he did establish that there was going to be a committee of folks that translated a new version into English. There were already a bunch of them, but he wanted another one. Probably could have put his name on it. But the new King James tries to follow the historic precedent. What is that? We want to capture what the ancient languages said in English best we can. And by the way, the King James folks wanted to do it in a way that really emphasized the beauty of English which is why I kind of like the old King James. It's beautiful. 
But there's still differences, even if you take those five. There's still differences between them in English. So, for example, um, what do you use? You use the same one I do. I don't want you. <laughs> Who uses a different version? Who uses the English standard? Anybody here? Okay. Would you read that for me? I'd like to have a man read it if it's all right. I want you to go to Philippians 1. Anybody here use the old King James? Oh, good. But I need a man to read. Can you do that for me? Philippians 1. Everybody turn in there. Okay, I'm waiting until we get there. Are you there? Philippians 1? Do we have a King James reader? No? Can you do that for me? Oh, he's got 16 versions on his phone, right? Yeah. Man, is that good. By the way, while we're waiting on... Uh, you have an old King James? I want Philippians 1, verse 22. But hold up just a minute because I want to make a comment here. I like books, people. I'm not anti-telephones and iPads and computers and all that. But this is thrown in free of charge, okay? And don't fuss at me for it. As a grandpa, I want my kids seeing me open the book, not pull out my telephone. That's just a personal thing. Because on that telephone, I could be reading just about anything, and some of some it's really bad stuff. Thrown in free of charge. All right, are you ready with King James Philippians 1.22? Loud and clear. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet, what shall I choose? I do not know. You didn't read the old King James. That is not old King James. <laughs> All right, while he's getting that, read me the ESV. Who's got the ESV, Okay. Okay, Daniel, read me the same passage in the ESV. Philippians 1, 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. Good, now read the old King James. But if I live in the flesh, this is the fruit of my labor, yet what I shall choose, I what not. Ooh, that's good. I have it up here. Yet what I shall, may I say it in British? Because this is King James. What I shall choose, I wot not. And you don't have a clue what I wot not means, do you? I don't think so. And when we moved to Romania, you may have had the same challenge when you moved to Hungary. The, the translators did not know what to do with I wot not. Because I was an old King James guy. But I gave it up when we went to Romania. Because they had to translate the English into Romanian and it's hard enough when it's modern English, but I won't, won't. I cannot tell. That's really not a clear understanding of what I what not means. But the idea is I'm kind of between two. You know, I'm not sure where to go. And, you know, he was trying to decide whether he's going to live or die or whether he wanted to. So, but my point is even in the 
new, in the versions of the New Testament, in all those five, you're going to find differences because languages change and the way you express it can change. Okay. And there's different wording in English to represent the same Greek and Hebrew text. Like I read you the New King James on 1 Peter 3 in, the, in mine. The New American Standard says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Well, that's a little different, but I don't believe it changes the essence of what's being said. Whereas the other version I read you changes it completely by saying it shows you've already been saved. And that's not right. All right. But there are variations in the English text because, ladies and gentlemen, you may not be aware that especially since 1611 when the King James Version was translated, there have been lots of major finds that have allowed us to see the text more clearly in some instances from more ancient manuscripts. In fact, the King James translators did not have access to any of the three major manuscripts of the Bible at that time. That's tonight. That's my third advertisement. And the relative importance given to these various recent finds by committees of scholars, and it matters in some instances. And the difference in text shows up. So let's go to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. All right, one reason I love for people to have Bibles is I can listen for the rustling of the pages and know you're still looking. So, Daniel, I want you to write an app that makes pages rustle when you turn in the phone. That's your job. All right, is everybody at Acts 8, 37? Let's read, starting with verse 36. I'm going to read it now first out of the King James. This is the new King James. Now, as they went down their road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What does hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. 36 and 37. So here's the old King James. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe Jesus Christ is the son of God. So you see what the new King James version did was it just changed the old words, verbs into modern day verbs, basically. But the King James version has no indication at all. There's any problem with that verse. You see that? The New King James, in mine, notice, has a little star right there. And then it refers you to a footnote that says, N-U-M, omit verse 37, it is found in Western texts, including the Latin tradition. That makes the New King James a better English translation than the Old King James because it at least identifies there's some challenges with that verse which you need to know. 
especially if you're studying with somebody in Acts 8. Because there are some versions class where you start with verse 36 and you read, and there is no verse 37 in the text. And that's disheartening when you're studying with somebody who's not even a believer yet. So you're saying to yourself, what in the world is in you and in? And I say, come back this afternoon. Because we don't have time this morning. The ASV omits this verse in the text and puts it in a footnote. The American Standard Version omits the verse and puts it in a footnote. So if you read the American Standard Version, which is a great standard translation, you will not read verse 37 in the text. It'll be in a footnote. And here's what it says. Some ancient authorities insert holy or in part. Do you see that? Some ancient authorities insert holy or in part, verse 37. And then it quotes verse 37. A little hint. The fact is there are some ancient manuscripts that don't have it at all. There are some that have part of it. There are relatively few that have it. That's a fact. I've learned long since not to argue with facts. And then the NSV treats it as follows. New American Standard. It has brackets around it. You see that? With a little number one. And then it says early MSS do not contain this verse. What's an MSS class? A manuscript. And you know what that is. Manu means hand. Script means written. So it's a handwritten document. And you do know, don't you, class, that until the 1400s, every book was written by hand. And there were no Xerox machines. Early MSS do not contain this verse. Now that's not a very good footnote because it doesn't give you much information. But at least it identifies that verse 37 has some challenges to it. And you, beloved, as a Christian who's studying the Bible, needs to know that. I think. That's why we're doing this. Acts 8.37. Because have you ever used that verse to teach someone they have to confess before they're baptized? Of course you have. And if you are studying with somebody who's knowledgeable, they're going to say, well, that verse doesn't even belong in the Bible. Let's try another one. 1 John 5. Everybody go to 1 John 5. When are we to stop, David? Is there a bell? At Okay. And that's stopping time, or is that the warning bell? Oh, no. All right. 1 John 5. Everybody get there in a hurry. And I have a breeder over here <clears throat> with a big booming voice. First John 5, I hope everybody's there. You look at yours while he reads his. Verse 7 and 8, go ahead, loud and clear. Is that all you have to say? 
Is that what yours reads, folks? No. Depends on what version you're reading. <clears throat> Here's what the King James Version says. For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness on earth, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one. <clears throat> That's a whole lot different from what he just read. The New King James Version says it this way. I'm not going to read all that, but do you notice there's a star right there by the word witness? It refers you to a footnote that says, In you and M omit the rest of verse 7 and through on earth in verse 8, a passage found only in four or five very late Greek MSS. <clears throat> you already know what MSS is, but you don't know what in you and M is. That's tonight. But at least in the New King James, it identifies the verses 7 and 8 of 1 John have some problems when it comes to manuscript evidence. And what he read, was there any indication there in the text that there was any challenges there? What does it say in your version? What's, what one did you read, by the way? Uh, New American Standard. Okay. The American Standard puts it like he read it with no footnote at all. You listening? The New American Standard, the old one that I worked at, had no footnote either. His, they've done some changes of the NASV. His put a footnote in that basically quotes the other. But you could be in a class where you're reading 1 John 5, 7, and 8, American Standard, King James, and they read very differently. There's a reason for that, and you at least need to know that when you're talking to somebody. And the third example, which we have just a few minutes, Mark 16. Everybody turn to Mark 16. What's your favorite verse out of Mark 16, class? The one we quote all the time? Say it with me. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who believeth not shall be condemned. Mark 16, verse 16. The expression of the teaching of the gospel to every creature. All right. Let me just go through this with you on the screen. The King James Version has that, verses 9 through 20, just like you normally would read it with no reference to any challenges whatsoever. <clears throat> you would know nothing from the King James. The New King James, which is the one I use, notice what it does here. Again, there's a star right there. See it? Which refers you to this. Verses 9 through 20 are bracketed in NU as not original. They are lacking in Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, although nearly all other MSS of Mark contain them. And so my question is, what in the world is Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus? And you say, I don't know, and what am I going to say? Come back tonight. Tonight is going to be a long lesson, but they can't stop me tonight. Well, I guess they could. But <laughs> we have a little more flexibility tonight. So we're going to deal with Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus tonight. 
which speaks to this Mark 16 issue. Let's go on to the next one. The ASV has a marginal note, the two oldest Greek manuscripts, which is Sinaiticus Vaticanus, and some other authorities omit from verse 9 to the end. Some other authorities have a different ending to the gospel, says the American Standard Version. That was the early 1900 version. And then the New American Standard, <clears throat> notice, has parentheses around this whole section. Marginal note, some of the oldest MSS omit from verse 9 through 20. Many MSS add the word amen. So my purpose in coming to this, this class this way this morning was to stir up trouble. So I hope I stirred up some trouble. Because if you haven't ever thought about this before or ever given it deep consideration, then you're not a careful enough Bible student yet. And I'm asking you to get a little more serious because you need to. And you don't have to become an expert on manuscripts, but I'm going to try to get you close. I'm not an expert either by any stretch. But I have done a good bit of study about this, and it's worthwhile. So I think you will find tonight's lecture that expands on this issue very useful as a Bible student. All right. Anybody want to ask me a question about Mark 16 before we leave? <clears throat> Did you, well, let me just do this with you. How many of you in this room knew there were some problems with Mark 16 in terms of textual criticism? <clears throat> okay, less than half. That's been my experience. And if you were studying with a good, um, well-learned Baptist fellow, and you quote Mark 16, 16, he would say, well, you do know that that's a challenged passage and maybe doesn't even belong in the Bible. So why are you using it? And I think you need to be prepared to deal with that in some way. In our next lesson, we will focus on the New Testament as we deal with questions of variations in the text of our English versions of the Bible. That's tonight. There are variations in the text of our English versions in the New Testament. Haven't I shown you that? Because there are variations in extant, there's a word I want you to learn. Do you know the word extant? Anybody want to help me? What's extant mean? Huh? It exists somewhere on earth. In other words, you can go somewhere on earth and find it. Variations in extant Greek manuscripts and versions of the Old Testament. We haven't even said anything about the versions much except the English version. You do know there are other languages besides English, right? <laughs> so there are versions of the Bible that are very ancient in other languages that also contribute to knowing what's in the text. So the problem is there are variations not only in the Greek and versions of the New Testament, but also in English. And there are reasons for that. And, whoops, what did I do here? There are more fundamentals about this subject that every Christian should know. We will see you at the next lesson.